0: Good morning. Saying when we drove in, this will be the first real test of Dawn's new wood stove in the back here. It's the first cold morning we've had this winter, and I'm always warm, but I think it's fine. I'm sure most of the ladies will disagree with me. Highest of all, my sister, I'm assuming. We're cold? Yeah, of course we are. All right. It's nice and warm in here. All right. Let's turn in our Bibles, we are up to verse 7 in Matthew chapter 7, so I'll ask you to turn there, Matthew 7 verse 7, and once you've got it, then I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word. And these are the perfect and infallible words of God. Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. So in today's passage, we're going to look at the value of perseverance. Jesus goes through the, an ask-seek-knock pattern twice, here in verses 7 and 8. And I think it's noteworthy at the beginning that asking, seeking, and knocking are not three uh, unrelated actions, but three different ways of looking at the same general type of perseverance that we as Christians are called to emulate. Perseverance in the Christian life That is, asking, seeking, and knocking can have many, many applications. But I want to look, first of all, at what its central focus is here in light of what we have been learning and will continue to learn in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already shown us at other places in the sermon how important perseverance really is. So in the Beatitudes, in chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus commends those who persevere in seeking righteousness promising that their hunger and thirst will be satisfied. And then he picks up a similar theme in 520, where he urges perseverance in seeking for those who would enter the kingdom of heaven, teaching that their righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. So there's something to reach for, there's something to seek after. And then most recently, in chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus has promised that the Father will give us all that we need, but that we shouldn't be anxious about these things, but that we should rather be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, at the same time, we've been working through this in Sunday school, we've been discussing the state of fallen man. What's the state of our hearts after the fall? And we've seen clearly what the Bible says about who is and who is not seeking after God. So, we should start by looking at two questions. That this passage proposes. One, who are the seekers? Who's the one seeking, asking, and knocking? And secondly, what is it that they are to seek and ask for? So first of all, who are the seekers? Well, if you've been in Sunday school, we've worked through Romans 3, 10 and 11, in which the Apostle Paul agrees with the psalmist when he quotes him twice in these verses. And in Romans 3, 10 and 11, it says, "'None is righteous, no, not one.'" No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Who's seeking the kingdom of heaven? No one. On our own steam, not one person is seeking the kingdom. But Jesus says we should seek Him in His kingdom. So how do we put this together? So is this one of those places where theological liberals will love to come at us and say, see, your Bible contradicts itself, so just pick one side or better yet, throw your Bible out altogether." Is it that? Who's going to win the tug of war between the red verses and the black verses? Okay, and we should never, ever, ever see our Bible that way. There are no contradictions here. The psalmist and Paul are talking about Nan's natural condition, fallen man and fallen man cannot come to God. And this is not because God's keeping him away, but because nothing in our fallen nature wants God. Our choices are meaningful because they reflect what's happening inside of us. What comes out of our mouth, what we do with our hands, the decisions we make, it's all an accurate reflection of what's happening in the heart and in the mind. That's why our choices are meaningful. Our choices are not meaningful because we could have done anything, but because they tell us, what's happening inside of us. And so the reason that fallen man is not following God, not seeking God, according to the psalmist, according to Paul, and at other places, according to Jesus, is because we don't want to. It's very simple. We can't because we don't want to. God's not keeping us away. We are keeping ourselves away. And we may have moments, even in a fallen state, where we're seeking particular benefits from God, but we're not seeking God himself for himself. So, the ones who are genuinely seeking after God, who are seeking the kingdom and not just looking for benefits and gifts from God, are those of us who have been born again. And the seeking demonstrates that we're a new creation with a new heart and new desires. So, when we read here that Jesus is pushing us to ask, seek, and knock, what he's doing is separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the seekers from the non seekers, the believers from the unbelievers. And so the seekers here must be the people who have come to Christ by faith for the forgiveness of their sins. So, the answer to the first question, who are the seekers? It's us. The answer is that these are Christians who are there by grace. Not people generally, but people who have come to Christ and His gospel. We are not there seeking Christ as some kind of a cosmic bellhop that, you know, we just call up our order and then He's going to give us the gifts that we think we need. And that moves us into the second question. What are we seeking? What are we to seek? What are we to ask for? Why are we knocking? And the people that are commended are people who are not just looking for gifts apart from a Savior. They're not looking for a gift apart from a giver, but properly seeing these two come as a package deal. And this has been the consistent theme through the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus applies it again to provision and prayer and how that looks. And so let's look again at verse 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So clearly the picture very much is one of perseverance and of persistence. Staying at it. Okay? Stay in the game. And the true Christian knows that the source of all good things is God himself. And so he persists coming back to the source of all good things. He's not just looking for stuff. He's going to the source of all good things. And when we go and we ask someone for something, when we knock, when we seek, we are admitting that we don't have it, right? I don't ask for things that I already possess. I ask for things that I am in need of, and I don't have the capacity to get myself. I need to ask. I need to have it by grace, when we're seeking, we're demonstrating that we have not yet achieved our destination. Okay? If we've arrived, there's nothing further to seek. So seeking implies that we're not yet there, that there's further to go on our journey yet. And we have to press on until we make it all the way home. And when we knock, we're also acknowledging that we are on the outside and we need to come to the inside. We knock until the door opens. So asking, seeking, and knocking are all signs of perseverance, things that we need to do. But notice the response to all three come by grace. All three are, we are active in asking, seeking, and knocking. We are passive in receiving the gift. In the answers, we receive. So God is supplying what we need because he's a good father who delights to give gifts to his children. Of great importance here is the fact that our asking, seeking, and knocking are not directed at self-centered trivialities. And I think this is the key or a key takeaway that we need to look at here i think it's very common especially in our narcissistic self-centered culture to see god as a kind of vending machine right or we see god's law as though it's some kind of life hacks right you've all seen the youtube videos of useless life hacks right in workarounds to get stuff okay and, and it's easy if we're not careful to think of god that way insert this prayer here, and then out comes the answer that we are asking for at the bottom, as though it's some kind of mechanical thing. But that is not at all the way God presents himself in Scripture. Okay, We don't just plug in a prayer, make our selection, and then out it comes rolling at the bottom. The seeking that has been commended so far in the Sermon on the Mount has been the kind of seeking that is looking for the righteousness of the kingdom. That's what we're after. And if we're to be truly satisfied, we have to know first who God is, and then who we are. So the whole aim of our Christian life is to become more and more conformed to the image of God, to be swept into His grand story, Okay, to see who we really are. What's the purpose of it all? What am I here for? And again, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is wonderful here because it sums up the whole part of the Christian life in one simple question. And if you know the answer to this question, I'll ask you to say it out loud together. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this. What is the chief end of man? And man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I've sometimes used the picture of a pie graph. Some people tend to think of joy as though there's this fixed amount of joy, right? And it's this pie graph. And so, the bigger God's slice is of joy, the less mine must be. So, the whole aim of the Christian life is to be miserable, right? Because after all, we want God to have joy. We want to glorify Him. So, there's nothing left in this pie graph for me. But that's a poor way to look at it. I think a better way to look at it is more like a fire, where more fuel means more air, which means more fuel. And this fire just keeps growing, Okay, this isn't a fixed amount of joy in creation, uh, and we've got to divvy it up somehow between God and us. This is a growing joy that benefits both sides. So we do not want to take the view that the whole aim of the Christian life is to be as plain and boring and dour as possible. And maybe you know someone like this. I have known Christians like this, who were showing their righteousness by how miserable they could be and how much they didn't enjoy anything in life was somehow a picture of their righteousness. But how does this practically work itself out in terms of asking, seeking, and knocking? Okay, and maybe you know Christians like this too. Some Christians will take a passage like this, or like Psalm 37.4, is frequently used this way as well, which says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. See how perfectly this fits with our narcissistic culture? Right? I, I, I just... i I love jesus and i'm overflowing with emotion and i've asked for a corvette and he says right here in his word it's in the bible god will give me the desire of my heart i desire a corvette it's really that simple people okay they treat it like a formula like a vending machine but then you get another group of christians who are so repulsed by that name it and claim it or blab it and grab it attitude that they take the opposite approach right and again well, no, just self-denial, just just, you know, I'm just plodding along, just me, just being Eeyore, spreading the joy of the gospel everywhere I go with my pessimism, right? That's not what we want to be. So how do we put this together? <clears throat> Seeking first the kingdom puts in perspective for us how to relate first things, primary things to secondary things. And so remember, putting the kingdom first is not about chronology. It's not about coming into the door of the gospel and now that I'm in, now that I'm saved, now I can move on to other things. Okay? Putting the kingdom first is for all of life. That means whatever your hand finds to do, you're doing it first for the kingdom of God. When you put your work boots on, you're doing it for the kingdom of God. When you're studying for exams next week, you're doing it for the glory of God. Okay? Whether you eat or drink, to all things as though uh, to the glory of God in His service. Okay, that's what seeking first the kingdom means. It doesn't mean the first step and then we're up and running on our own. It means whatever we do, kingdom purposes are first. God, how are you being glorified in what I'm doing today? God, this is for you. Okay, I'm making a meal for my family again and a bunch of teenage boys are going to come and devour it in three minutes and I'll wonder why I spent all day at it. That's for the kingdom of God. I see some nod, some, some head nods. okay. Uh, The monotony should not suck life out of us. It should help us to see that this is for the glory of God. All things are done first with the kingdom in mind, with the glory of Christ the King in mind. So seeking first the kingdom isn't about chronology. It's about meaning. It's about purpose. It's about priorities. It's about our aim. And I got some help here from other Christian thinkers whose words I will not improve on, but I will maybe translate some of this here. How does this work? Seeking our own good. Aaron talked a few weeks ago about better rewards, and it's not bad to have our own joy in mind when we're seeking righteousness, right? It's not bad. Too often Christians take this attitude that we should just not enjoy the Christian life, okay? Uh, But that's not right. We, We can't help but seeking our own good, So, either that will be spent on ourselves in a self centered way, or we find our own good as we are drawn into God's purposes. And so, I found four men in Christian history who can help us maybe conceptualize this better. The first is the church father, Augustine, who said, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. See what Augustine's saying? We're designed for a purpose. And unless we're doing that purpose, it's not going to be happy. Okay, It's not going to be happy. Okay, Your skid steer is great as a skid steer, but if it's going to pull a 60-foot air seater, you're going to look awfully silly. Okay, We find happiness as we find our purpose. What are we designed for? What is man designed for? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Later, there's the French mathematician and christian thinker pascal who many of us have heard of he says this all men seek happiness this is without exception whatever different means they may employ they all tend to this end the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire of both attended with different views you see what he's saying some men go to war to be happy and some men stay home from war to be happy. But both men are seeking their own good. Okay? This is inevitable. We seek what we want. And that's not necessarily bad if Christ is the final end. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Think of that. The man who commits suicide is seeking his own happiness. He has decided that not existing is happier than what he's dealing with. Even that man is seeking his own happiness. We cannot avoid this, people. We are seeking our happiness. There was once in man a true happiness of which now remained to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can be filled only by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God Himself. See what Pascal is saying? The same as Augustine. We were made for God. And if we try to find fulfillment in anything but God Himself, we are going to destroy ourselves. Okay? If you are going to find your happiness in sex, or drugs, or drinking, or sports, or whatever... You're going to destroy yourself seeking happiness on the wrong thing. You're going to kill yourself and those around you. You are designed to run on God. And unless or until you do, you will not be happy. And I was reminded of this again for some strange reason. I was reading up on Anthony Bourdain the other week. Does anyone remember Anthony Bourdain? Okay, Incredibly wealthy man. Uh, Cooking was his passion. And he'd travel all over the world making videos about food. Charmed life. You're wealthy, you're traveling the world, your job is to eat food from different places in the world. Could it get any better than that from a humanistic standpoint? Who knows how Anthony Bourdain's life ended? Killed himself, because it all meant nothing. He couldn't find happiness, okay? This man had money, he had travel, he had food, but he didn't know what Anthony Bourdain was for, okay? And he killed himself. Moving further on, Jonathan Edwards, Puritan pastor and theologian, puts it this way. God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding, and two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. See what Edwards is saying? Have you ever really enjoyed a song, and it's not enough for you to enjoy it, right? You got to play it for someone else so they can enjoy it, <laughs> okay? Is it? I see a guilty face. <laughs> this is a guilty face, right? But th- this is what we do. My favorite football team needs to be your favorite football team. Why? Because part of the joy is in it being contagious, okay? Not just seeing it, but rejoicing in it, overflowing with enjoyment for it, sharing it with others, And last, in our survey of church history here, is C.S. Lewis, who puts it in this way. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or of giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. See, that's what I just said. You like this song, everyone else has to too. It overflows in joy. It can't not do that. That's how the human heart operates. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do. What indeed we can't help but doing about everything else we value. So he's saying here again, he he had the strange conception that Christian joy meant it was all for God and I've got to be miserable. And he's saying he was wrong. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It has to come out of us for others to see and to taste and ultimately that the Lord is good. And we do this, like I said, with all kinds of things. So the joy is a feedback between us and God. This is a mutual growing in happiness between man and God. This isn't more for God, less for man. Asking, seeking, and knocking involves the the good of both man and the glory of God. And I've got a real life story of how this operates to break it down much simpler. Uh, One that I've thought of. Uh, And that is we used to pasture our heifers and dry cows across the road at the gravel pit. And uh, I used to go check on them there. And one time I was there in the spring and the wild roses were blooming quite beautifully. And I thought, man, that looks good. So I went and cut a bunch off on my way back home and brought them to Tanya in the house. Okay, and I did that because I love Tanya and because Tanya likes making our house look and smell nice. So I did that out of enjoyment for her, okay, as a gift to her and she was happy about that, and her happiness fed my happiness, right? Imagine, and so you see this feedback of happiness, of joy, of, of flowing over in praise, and think of how different that would have been if she, you know, Matt, thank you so much, that's so nice, and I'm happy to see it, so yes, of course, I love doing this kind of thing. Think how different a response that would be if, if my response had been, I know, I'm your husband, I'm supposed to do those things for you. Now, instead of everyone's mutual joy being served, joy has left the room. Happiness has been sucked out. And when we treat the Christian life that way, joy is sucked. God is not glorified because we are not happy. Our happiness is part of what glorifies God. As we ask, seek, and knock, we do so expectantly. We do so with first things first in our mind so that our joy is complete and God is happy in his creation running on the kind of fuel it was designed to run on. And he involves all of our senses in this. Okay, so look at the word pictures we have here. Ask, verbal, your mouth is involved in this. Seek, your eyes, visual, your eyes are involved in seeking. And knocking, your hand, your sense of touch, tactile sense to this. Okay, God is delighted to involve all our senses as we press into the kingdom of God. And so the pursuit of God's good gifts involves a joy-filled persistence. So we enjoy the gifts not simply because of what they do for us, but because they bring us closer to God. Okay? That's, the, that's the ultimate way to enjoy God's gifts to you. Don't look just at the thing. Look at how it connects you to a father who has given it to you. And again, shrink it down to Christmas morning or shrink it down to a birthday party and the different dispositions of different children who ask, seek, and knock for their favorite toy or their favorite gift. If a child's persistence is of the sort that is whiny and demanding, that child will not be satisfied when he gets what he wants because he's missing the point. Okay? That child will never be happy. And you see this all the time. Children that run the home, get everything they want, are not happy children. Okay? They're running on something different than what they were designed to run on. Okay, so just stuff, just gifts isn't going to solve this because there's a broken heart. There's broken disorders in this. Okay, now compare that with the child whose persistence is of the happy sort, the thankful sort, the sort that knows that mom and dad love him and are going to do what's best for him because they have his interest in mind. That child's capacity to enjoy the gift is far greater than the kid whose mindset is gimme, gimme, gimme. And Jesus picks up on this parent analogy as he moves on in verse 9 through 11. It says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask? And this is the same kind of a fortiori, or from the from the lesser to the greater kind of argument that we've seen in chapter 6. Jesus starts with the lesser, human fathers, who are fallen, and yet even we who are fallen know how to give good gifts to our children. So the how much more argument is if you know how to do that as an evil fallen man, you have your children's interest in heart, how much more will a perfect God have your interests in mind? So the importance of getting our priorities right in terms of first things and second things can be teased out in verses 9 and 10. Watch closely. The child is asking for bread and fish. And Jesus says the child will not receive a stone or a serpent in their place. A loving father does not give things to his children that is ultimately going to harm them. Okay? But notice closely. While it says that the child will not receive a stone or a serpent, it doesn't exactly either say that he gets exactly what he asks for, does it? It says what he's not going to get. He may not get exactly what he's asking for, but he will not get something bad. Perhaps something else is more needful in the moment. Perhaps the father knows that the child is craving one thing, but would benefit far more from a different thing. And so it is for us when we persist in prayer, when we ask, seek, and knock. We are to make our requests known to God, and we can ask for what we see is best in the situation as far as we know, and I've encouraged, I think it's good, I think it's healthy for us to be specific in our requests. Pray for someone's salvation by name, okay? I'm praying for a building, a particular building for this church. That doesn't mean we're going to get it, but I'm praying that way, okay? and we can pray for individual relatives who have names and faces, not just save everyone I know. That's not a bad prayer. That's good. But I think it's good to be specific. I think Scripture pushes in that direction to be specific. Ask, seek, knock. Specific requests demonstrate our belief that God works in the tiniest and minutest of details. He can get down to the very specific level And specific requests also allow for very specific rejoicing when God answers in a way that's very clear. He did save the person I've been praying for for 25 years. He did it. Rejoice specifically because that sinner has been saved. This request has been answered. So I think it's good. I think it's fine. It's in order to pray specifically. So go ahead. Let's ask for fish and for bread. But if God gives you a brisket, and a cup of yogurt instead, that's good. Receive it gladly, knowing that was better for you than what you had asked for. doesn't mean you shouldn't pray specifically, but if God's will is different, if He answers differently, we need to be okay with that, knowing that He knows best. And so we've seen that one of the greatest comforts of having a rock-solid, rock-ribbed, well-biblically-rooted doctrine of God's providence, of His meticulous sovereignty over all His creation, It's that God is not sovereign just in taking care of the big picture. You know, just the broad strokes will be taken care of. But the precise details are from his hand as well. God knows exactly what we need. And he'll be sure he gets it into our hand somehow or another. And if he he withholds a specific request, it's obviously because that thing would have not been good for us right now. Maybe it'll be good for us later. Maybe it never would have been. Okay? But he knows best. He will give us what we need and he will not hold anything that we do need. So the ultimate good for our ultimate joy isn't necessarily what's going to be shiny and exciting for us for the next 15 minutes. We need to think bigger than that. If a father gave his son cotton candy every time his boy asked for it, he would not be acting in his son's best interests. And our field of vision is so short, we don't know often what's good for us. We can say, as far as I know, God, this is how it looks to me right now, please do this. And we can pray that, and that's good. But at the end of it always is both a disposition or the words, but thy will be done. You know better. You're going to answer this in the best way. But here's my request. Unfortunately for us, there are no shortcuts to godly maturity in asking, seeking, and knocking. To grow in grace must be to be saturated in Scripture. Scripture. So that our minds can be renewed and we can discern the will of God as it talks about in Romans 12. So in our prayer life, this means that what we are asking for as we mature, as we get more saturated in God's word, uh, as we can look back on more and more instances where God has sustained us, where he has brought us through a difficult thing. So surely he'll do it again. As that maturing process takes place, what we're going to notice is that what we ask for, what we pray for is going to get more and more closely aligned with God's purposes for us. More and more, we're going to understand what's good for us, and we will pray accordingly. And this is the key to unlocking what it means to delight in the Lord so He gives us the desire of our hearts. This is what it means to ask so you can receive, to seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. As you grow in conformity to God, those things line up more and more the desire of your heart is the right thing okay and if you're asking the right thing in the right way for the glory of God you will receive the desire of your heart see how this works if your overarching passion in everything is the glory of God seeking first his kingdom if that's what's driving us in everything do you see how we will always give us what we want which is his glory we will always get answered prayer that way it will always be according to his glory and our good this is what it means to ask so we receive, to seek so we find, and to knock so it's opened. And in all that, we realize that God is playing the long game with us. He is thinking of what will make us happy, not just for today or this week. God is thinking of your happiness in 100,000 years from now. Okay? Think of that. Every soul in this room is going to be alive in 100,000 years. And it will be eternally happy or it will be eternally miserable. And God is ensuring that you will be eternally happy 100,000 years from now. His, His scope of vision is much longer than ours. So again, to summarize this, God will either give us exactly what we ask for in prayer, or He will give us exactly what we would have asked for if we know everything that He knows. I'll say that again. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer, or He gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything He knows. His ways are perfect. Asking, seeking, and knocking give a picture of how all our senses are to be involved in the pursuit of God's glory, in the righteousness of His kingdom. And as we encounter this glory, as we encounter the holiness of God, as we seek first His kingdom in all our various endeavors... We're going to be filled with the righteousness of the kingdom. That's ultimately what we are seeking. And these are the affections that must displace the old desires. If we're going to stop sinning, we can't just say, sin, stop. We have to replace it with something else. And that's the, the whole battle of the Christian life, is to replace those affections with something positive. We push the sin out because we're full of something else. Okay? Nature does not like a vacuum. To just say, I'm going to quit this sin and not replace it with anything it's going to fill up. We have to push it out with stronger affections, with a deeper search, with better asking, with better seeking, with better knocking. This is what we were designed for. And again, this all comes down to design. If you've got a diesel engine and you try running it on gas or on propane or on water, it's not going to work. That is seeking happiness apart from the kingdom of God. Seeking happiness apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ is running an alternate fuel. You weren't designed for that. We were designed for the kingdom of God. We were designed to pursue His righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto us. And so that's where I want to leave us this morning. As we contemplate in our own lives, as we pursue our endeavors, are we doing it selfishly or are we doing it for the glory of God? It's a question that we need to consider. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that I have not been in the way this morning, but that your word does the work. Lord, help us to see that you are ultimately most glorified in us when we are eternally happy in you. And that that joy, that overflow of happiness as we ask and as we seek and as we knock and as we see your purposes in all our life, Lord, I pray that that would become contagious, that that would overflow, and that that fire would grow bigger and stronger as we age, as we get older, that we would see what you are doing. Lord, I pray that we would have the confidence to come boldly to your throne, to ask, and then, Lord, also the humility to say that you know best, you know things that are too wonderful for us, and that we would happily receive whatever you give us, knowing that it's not... Uh, ever for our damage but always for our good if we are your children. Lord, I pray that each one here would have a settled confidence in your love for us, in your purposes for us, and in your delight in answering our prayers, giving us the good gifts that we need to get us all the way home. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we worship in song one more time, as we uh, connect relationally, as we love each other. Lord, and as we go from here, Lord, I pray that this week we would have a strong sense of your purpose for our lives and we would live lives in joyful anticipation that we would ask, seek, and knock, knowing that you are good and you will answer. We bring this to you all in the strong name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So receive the charge. The whole business of the Christian life is to seek the righteousness of the kingdom. Our pursuit is ultimately of God. While God has promised to be a kind Father and to give us many good gifts, it is the giver and not the gifts which are ultimate. The gifts are like the sights and scenes along the way, there to enjoy as long as they point us towards our destination instead of distract us from it. God is pleased to involve the whole person in our pursuit of Him. We ask, seek, and knock using our voice, our eyes, and our hands. This week, may we all be found to be seekers who are using all our faculties to press towards the goal. May we pray specifically and give specific thanks for answered prayer. And where God has not answered our specifics, let us also thank Him that He sees fit to give us better than we thought, had thought to ask. And then receive the benediction from Ephesians three twenty and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And go in peace.